Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Yesterday evening, I uh, recorded an interview with one Mitzi Perdue. Now, she's not very well known in Latvia, and um, her agents contacted me. She is apparently the wife of the late Frank Perdue, who was the former CEO of Perdue Farms, and she's a philanthropist, and um, she's doing a very awesome thing right now when she's gather- where she's gathering money to remove landmines. We had a nice conversation. It was extremely late for me here, though, and uh, I was feeling quite a bit off myself, so it's not the best interview for my part. However, while she was very nice and kind and, and in general, an awesome lady, and a bit strange at the beginning, but really awesome, and that'll come out as soon as Anna edits it. But so far, well, we got to talk about the front lines. Thing is, not much has changed, really. I mean, a lot of this, by the way, the bigger news, such as Putin, Putin uh, wanting to put nukes in Belarus and all that stuff, it comes up in the interview, which is going to be the next episode, so wouldn't want to spoil that one, because that's not going to go away. Just to calm you down, uh, it doesn't really change much, and probably Putin, most likely, is not going to do anything that stupid. However... You know, despite Bakhmut and, and everything being silent and even preparing for the Ukra- Ukrainian counteroffensive, since, well, it's happening eventually. But fighting is still actively going on in Bakhmut. And when I say active fighting, yeah, I have, um, I have to explain this a bit. I mean, low-grade fighting, like skirmishing between units with, but with no major movements, is happening everywhere on the front lines. It's just that the Bakhmut is actually the place where the most activity, where... Um, or, you know, some movement can be observed. So when I say nothing changes, it doesn't mean like uh, the whole of the front is just sitting and doing nothing. And, uh, well, on the other quieter sections of the front, interesting things are happening there as well. For example, well, um, you know, previously, previously I've been claiming to people a lot about Russian fakes and how RT doctors its materials. That was one of the main reasons why I got into this argument with... Uh, our best buddy, uh, Michael Tracy, in the, well, conversation that got me banned from Twitter. You see, he claimed that, or, or some of his listeners, I don't know, I don't care, uh, some of those anti-American, super pro-Putin guys who, who just believe everything Russia gives them, you know, they, they are all claiming, and as is a popular thing, for example, to claim that in Bucha it was all fake, it was Ukrainians staging everything up, or it was Ukrainians killing their own people, yeah, I was there, okay, and there have been, like, a ton of international experts going there, so it's totally not fake, and it's totally real, and it's horrible, and all these people who claim that those are fakes, they do it because the Russian Russian propaganda portray fakes of, of their own, and me, I knew that constantly, because they were just pumping out the stuff that was totally fabricated for eight years, and even before that, they've been doing this all the time, but right now, at this given moment in time, we have a very specific occasion where the Russian propaganda filmed the fake, and they published it, and it was disproven so hard that they actually had to had to kind of overturn it. Thing is, you you might have seen the video where with a kind of a video registrator thing, dash cam, I suppose that's in English, the one that you put in front of your uh, car when you're driving around. With that, there was sort of a filmed an incident where apparently, according to this video, a lady overtook some um, some Ukrainian army guys like uh, in a blog post or something, one of those places, 
and then they yelled at her and then they yelled at her for like not speaking Ukrainian and speaking Russian and all treated her like like garbage and then shot in the air or something just to make you Russia look bad for sorry Ukraine look bad but the problem is that um one dash camps have been prohibited in Ukraine for military reasons for uh this whole year at this point and having a dash cam active is 3 to 12 years in prison and this military guy if he was a real guy wouldn't yell at her for not talking Ukrainian to him but talking Russian instead he would just arrest her for using a dash cam in general which makes sense secondly in the video from the standard things is the fact that she completely changes accents as she's talking she just uh, also seems just weird in general because this wasn't done professionally and secondly they also use the old army badges which don't exist and they have obviously painted nazi symbols in ukrainian tanks which also ukraine doesn't use but if all of this doesn't sound convincing then how about the fact that um, some of the gidkin's buddies who are pro-war guys they noticed that russian propaganda war effort was on the low side so they literally went out went out and found the place the exact spot where the video was filmed with documented proof and photographs and that turns out deep into donetsk under russian controlled territory now and i don't know about you but um putting up ukrainian blog posts and uh, in Russian-controlled territory, deep inside of it, is not what the Ukrainian army would use. Like I said, it got so bad that even, even the propaganda pages and all the sites admitted it was completely fake and removed it, and, uh, well, they never apologized for it. The most comments were that Russian propagandists, the guys who filmed this, apparently are losing the information war, and they should be more careful and produce better stuff next time. Yeah, you're, you're surprised that they take pride in lying? Of course they do. Again, this comes from the Russian criminal mindset. It is what it is. But, but yeah, this is just kind of the sidelines. I just thought it was important since right now we finally have the very first super documented evidence that Russia has fabricated things. Mind you, in all the cases when Russia has accused Ukraine of doing the same, we have found the evidence of the contrary instead. So Ukraine is much more trustworthy. But if you see something in Russian news, you should double and triple check it, because right now, I don't know, they're lying more than usual. But my whole episode wasn't supposed to be about this one. After all, like I said, a lot of this is going to go in tomorrow's interview, which, again, I think I butchered myself. But uh, my guest, Mitzi, Mitzi was uh, super happy, and at least she seemed so. Hope it wasn't faked, but hey, you know, I'm going to post the charity she's working on as well, but that's not my best work that I'm super proud of, just warning you before everything. But after all my problems and everything, I just wanted to talk a bit more about Wagner Group. Since, well, Wagner Group has been waging an offensive war to gain control of Bakhmut for more than seven months now. As of March 21st, Wagner Group claims to have captured 70% of the city. And this increasingly appears likely to gain control of the rest. Ukraine's fighting back, and it's very slow, and nobody thought it would hold that long, but, um... But, yeah. Wagner is still pushing on. So, they're doing something, well, while the rest are not, and although it's a fighting retreat for Ukrainians, and the recalculated one, Wagner Group isn't supposed... isn't achieving all of their potential, we have to say that Wagner Group is by far the most successful military unit Ukraine has. So... What differs them from everything else? Well, you see, for the first few weeks of Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine, 
this Wagner group was not even involved. It wasn't until April 2022 that Wagner units have been deployed in Papanska. At that point, the Ukrainian-held city in the Luhansk region that had been on the contact line between Ukrainian troops and the Russian proxy forces since 2015, and thus was well-equipped well to pre defend itself. At that point, Russia's military command, which had by then suffered defeats in Kiev, Kharkiv and Mykolaiv regions, launched offensives in multiple directions at once in the Donbas. Most of these assaults failed, but Wagner mercenaries and scumbags who tried to literally kill me, and in general pieces of trash, I... Well, you know, if someone tries to kill you, you, you get to call them names. Well, these guys managed to dislodge the Ukrainian military from Papasna, and Russian troops managed to take the city of Liman, which was then later reconquered. Now, that wasn't the big offensive thing. And it's been clear since the whole battle for Papasna that Wagner Group's tactics are well suited for these, this war's conditions. There's a video from that period that shows an assault group of mercenaries overtaking the positions of a larger Ukrainian unit with help from a reconnaissance drone. The clip stands in stark contrast to the images of urban combat that emerged from Mariupol and Rubizhny about around the same time. Starting in August, Wagner Group got a dramatic boost in manpower when it began recruiting all the Bratva guys, you know, all the former contract fighters and everyone into their ranks. While the Russian army was retreating from northern Donbas, Wagner Group continued its offensive into the central part of the region. On August the 1st, the mercenaries captured the Vukhilirinska power station, after which they began their slow advance to Bakhmut from the south. In October, Wagner Group had grown so large that it was assigned a significant portion of the front that stretched from northern Khorlivka to Solidar. Regular Russian troops are also stationed there and have played a supporting role since the fall, by the way, but, you know, Wagner Group is by far dominant. By November, when the Ukrainian military liberated Kherson and tried to advance on Svatove in the northern part of the Luhansk region, it became clear that Wagner Group was preparing an operation to capture Solidar and Bakhmut, despite Russian troops' difficulties everywhere else in the front. The Ukrainian military started redirecting its troops to the area around Bakhmut, including units that were forced and freed up by the liberation of Kherson, and later even dismantled a group of forces deployed, deployed around Svatove to strengthen its defenses in, in, in further in the center of Donbas. Today, however, these forces have been unable to halt Wagner Group's slow advance. At the same time, none of the other offensives Russian forces have launched through the winter have yielded any significant results. So, what makes Wagner Group effective? How do they fight? In its scale and the size of the area it covers, Wagner Group is roughly comparable to the Russian military's four groups of forces in Ukraine that are formed on the basis of, of you know, military districts, western, central, eastern, southern. The mercs, if you can even call them such because they're very closely tied to the government, have their own artillery and their own aviation power as well. Obviously, available details about the cow group is structured and how they work are limited. Most of the information comes from the stories that mercs themselves have told to the mm, so-called war correspondents, and I call them so-called because... Yeah, I know. I'm one, but I doubt they truly are. And these stories are obviously... Well, quite much vague. See, first of all, there's also some drone footage, but it's minimum, minimal. But this is for my military fans. Wagner Group's command shows a level of flexibility that the Russian armed forces lack. In the battle for Bakhmut, the group has repeatedly altered the directions of its major assaults. While it seemed in November that the Mercs intended to attack and surround Bakhmut from the south, in early December, they suddenly replaced forces from the self-declared Donetsk People's Republic around Solidar and captured several important suburbs. 
Jokovlivka and Bakhmushtia. After that, the group once again shifted its focus to the south of Bakhmut, getting control of part of the suburbs of Opitnaya before focusing its forces back on Solidar, which ultimately led to the town's capture. This was followed by an attack further south, where Wagner forces captured Kishivka, a village that had been vital to Ukraine's defense of Bakhmut. These frequent shifts in the direction of impact took a clear toll of Ukraine's reserve forces. This approach differs fundamentally, for example, from the offensive on Vukhlidar, where Russia's command from the eastern military district has just repeatedly been launching attacks along the same roads for months and just smashing their heads in. That's the thing. Wagner Group operates way more like a modern military, with, with where you tell the marines that you want to capture that, that mountain, and then the marines just, you know, do their best. You don't ask them how. Meanwhile, in Russia, it's super strict and controlled from the top down. The soldiers are not just told to basically hold on to something, but they're also micromanaged and told how to do it, which is very bad in military. I even think Wagner Group might as well, you know, use the OODA loop, observe, orient, direct, attack, if I'm not mistaken. Although, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have called myself an expert on these matters a year ago, but at this point, I guess I know a thing or two. Wagner Group's forces, by the way, are organized into assault detachments, not regular kind of things, that are themselves made up of assault groups. And Wagner Assault Group, reported by Ukrainian journalists and soldiers, have, have reported that, you know, this can contain between 7 and 50 fighters. These assault groups from Wagner try to approach Ukrainian positions unnoticed by moving at night, taking cover, and etc. Practically every group is accompanied by the reconnaissance drone, whereas Russian armed forces are expecting a drone shortage and they're living through one which studies Ukraine's positions in detail. Wagner Group, that is, that is. Wagner Group commanders and their deputies reportedly receive detailed plans on electronic maps which show the routes each mercenary should take. According to intelligence data, the resources necessary for each battle are also calculated in advance, including the number of stormtroopers that will give the group a numerical advantage and the amount of ammunition necessary to suppress Ukraine's firing points. Most Wagner units have reinforcements in the form of artillery that process, as they call it, Ukrainian positions after they're attacked. Suppression fire from these reinforcements makes possible for storm groups to get close to the targeted positions. After that, a fire group carries out strikes on identified Ukrainian firing points from mortars, automatic grenade launchers, and or hand grenade launchers. After that, the mercs begin storming the trenches or buildings where the Ukrainian troops are posted. These attacks are guided by commanders who are observing the events remotely with the help of drones using protected means of communication, which is also a thing that regular Russian army lacks completely. Wagner storm groups demonstrate more resilience than the Russian military. If an attack fails, they can mount it again. Wagner group artillery gunners attempt to prevent Ukrainian reserve forces from, from approaching the battlefield. Sorry, this is a long one. Wagner mercenaries rarely use armored vehicles in close combat, but they use aviation more liberally than the Russian aerospace forces. Russian army aircraft tries not to fly in areas reachable to Ukraine's air defenses, whereas Wagner Group, they actively fly directly over the battlefield. At the same time, the Mercs has both significantly less attack power in air and way higher casualty rate because, like I've mentioned many times before, they truly do not give any concern about any of the soldiers there. Judging from videos, Wagner Group artillery is widely dispersed across the battlefield, allowing it to avoid extensive damage. This also facilitates effective management and communications. In the regular Russian army, 
artillery was stationed, that is stationed up until now, close together, and it suffered heavy losses. The downside of these tactics, however, is also significant. Wagner Group assault units constantly die out, suffer heavy personal losses. It has been reported that they are not evacuated and the, you are supposed to go into attack until you basically bleed out until night. No one is sending you units that will pick you up and carry the wounded. No one cares. According to Ukrainian soldiers and journalists, the, high, the highest losses are among the mercenaries who stormed Ukrainian trenches directly. Wagner Group's command, incidentally, isn't shy about spreading what it views as a cheap resource. They spend it easily while retaining its well-trained and experienced specialists. And, again, this is basically First World War. Wagner Group, unlike main Russian army, has understood that this war will be won by maneuvers and sneaky ones and encirclements later on, but they're incapable of pulling this off. However, Wagner Group now approaches their tactics. And, well, of course, the one thing to learn is can the Ukrainian military actually stand against this? According to Ukrainian military personnel who have studied Wagner Group's tactics, the Ukraine's problem is that many of its defense forces are static. Soldiers are constantly sitting in the trenches or the buildings where they've been commanded to stay. Often they don't have enough intelligence resources, such as drones, for constant assessments of possible approaches by the Russian mercenaries. Finally, part of the problem comes from the Ukrainian military command's own decision-making. For most of the Battle of Bakhmut, Russia's mercenaries had a numerical advantage. In those conditions, Kiev had two least bad options, and none of them was good. Transfer significant reserves to the part of the front that was under threat, equalize the balance of forces and try to regain the initiative, or retreat and transfer its forces that were defending Bakhmut to more defendable positions. So far, however, Kiev hasn't chosen either option. The troops it has transferred to Bakhmut, meanwhile, haven't been enough. Most likely, Ukraine's military will be forced to decide sooner or later, but in worse conditions than if it had done so, for example, a month ago. Which is why, well, it's quite, quite difficult to predict the goings-on in Bakhmut. Because again, this is why it's important, this is why the fights are happening there. Because Wagner Group, out of all the Russians that are fighting in this war, is just doing it differently, ruthlessly. They truly and absolutely don't care about casualties or losses, but, well, they reach results. The only one Russia has, as few and far between and tiny as they are, which is obviously good for all of us here. But there you go. This has been the news. Next episode is going to be the interview, whenever that's edited. And if something interesting happens, we'll, of course, jump onto it. It's <laughs> just that uh, I feel... I feel quite bad, again, about making episodes when not much is happening. But working constantly on bigger projects so far. And, as usual in all of the episodes, if you consider if you would consider becoming our patron in patreon.com slash border, we would very much appreciate it. And also, you can just go to theeasternborder.lv and click the donate button there. That, thus, you know, making a one-time payment or something. Your help literally pays my salary, because money I get from sponsors and ads... It gets eaten up by Acast, who host my show in Sweden and relate internationally. So that really doesn't matter a lot. It's like, what, $100, $200 per month, which I give to Anit for editing. So it's you guys, you guys who pay my salary, and thank you for that. Dealing with a lot of paperwork now, but hey, much more happier than the last time. And that was a really hard episode to make. So all in all, thank you for listening. <laughs>
До свидания, товарищи. And as usual, happiness is mandatory.